If you'll turn with me to Psalm 19, that's where we'll be today, um, or it's printed in your worship guide. <clears throat> well, in the classic baseball movie, The Sandlot, fifth grader Scott Smalls, the Smalls from You're Killing Me Smalls, um, starts playing pickup baseball with his new neighborhood's boys. Um, and where they play, over the fence, lives an English mastiff um, that the boys call the Beast. It's a monstrous junkyard dog that Smalls is told is a killing machine that has to be chained up forever. He belongs to Mr. Myrtle, the meanest old man that ever lived. Whenever a baseball is hit over the fence, it's claimed by the Beast. Well, you can probably guess what happens. Um, balls go over the fence. Well, they lose their last ball. And Smalls, who he's got a new stepfather, says, I've got a ball at the house. I'm going to go borrow it. And he goes and gets this ball off of his dad's, um, I think it's a mantle, maybe a, maybe a bookcase. I don't remember what it's on. But it's autographed by Babe Ruth. It's just sitting there and a thing. None of the other kids know that's the case. So they start playing with it and gets hit over the fence. Right? So you can imagine the panic that sets in when Smalls tells them that this baseball is one that um, some lady wrote her name on called Baby Ruth. So then they have to figure out how to get the ball back. Right? That drives the, drives the thing. Well, eventually they do get it. But in getting it, um, the beast escapes, ends up knocking over the fence. Fence falls on him. They have to help him out. Um, but guess what? The beast ends up being this just friendly giant. And he take him, takes him to his whole uh, doghouse that has just balls and balls, buckets of balls in it, you know? <laughs> Not even worried about it. Well, they have to knock on the door, Mr. Myrtle, to tell him what happened. And he says, why didn't you just knock on the door? I would have gotten it for you. And they find out that he's a nice old guy. One who is a baseball player, actually knew Babe Ruth. And more than that, to keep Smalls from getting in too much trouble, I mean, you can imagine what kind of trouble he's in, um, Mr. Myrtle exchanges the chewed-up Babe Ruth autographed ball for an even better one, a Murderer's Row autographed ball from the whole 1927 Yankees team. Then he says, I want you to come over and talk to me, talk baseball. They never would have known who Mr. Myrtle really was if they hadn't knocked on his door and let him tell them. If the ball signed by Babe Ruth didn't happen, they didn't, need a, uh, they didn't need it back so badly to risk life and limb, they never would have gone. They would have kept thinking he's this mean old man and there's a killer dog instead of getting to know him for who he is and getting to hear amazing stories of the sport that they grow to love. Smalls doesn't really like it when it starts, but he ends up being an announcer for his life. So that's what they get. I wonder if we're not like, like that with God sometimes. Where we have these ideas of what people have told us he's like. Or maybe we conjure up ideas in our own minds. But we don't actually ever go to him. To learn it personally from him. Hear what he actually has to say about himself. But praise God that he hasn't left us guessing. He's actually revealed himself to us. He's told us who he is. And it's even better than Mr. Myrtle. 
So let's hear how God has revealed himself to us in Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. By your spirit, illumine this to our hearts and minds, that we might see your glory, that we might see your goodness, that we might see your character in this psalm, that you would change us, that by your spirit, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight through our Redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been going through um, some of the psalms this summer, and the psalms are songs. They're the original hymn book for the people of Israel. Um, They're meant to be sung together. You can even see that in the superscription. I don't know if it was printed, but it's to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's what these are for, um, to actually be sung together. And songs, I mean, we all know this, uh, songs songs touch us on a deeper level. They kind of hit the heart. They hit the emotions a little bit differently. Um, than other things. But they don't merely just touch our emotions. They actually shape us. They actually move us. And as the Word of God, Psalms move us in the right direction. They move us to where we should be. They show us how we should feel. So that's what we're seeing this morning. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 19, and it's a good one. Um, C.S. Lewis, who most of us know for maybe the Chronicles of Narnia or some of his Christian writings. He's actually also a world-class scholar who taught at uh, Oxford and Cambridge. And he said, this is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So sorry for what I'm about to do to it here. But as God's people sing this song, they celebrate that God has revealed himself to them. He has shown them who he is in his creation 
and then especially in his word. And as they celebrate the way God has revealed himself, it moves them to respond appropriately. So we're going to walk through these three stanzas together this morning. We're going to see first the wordless revelation of God in creation. Then we'll see the perfect revelation of God in scripture. And then we'll see the right response to the revelation of God. So this first stanza, we see the wordless revelation of God in creation. Verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. See the verbs here. Declare, proclaim, pour forth, reveal knowledge. Creation is speaking. Always speaking. And what's it saying? God is glorious. He made all of this. One of the ideas of glory is that it has weight, that it has substance, that it impresses itself upon us. And most of us have probably experienced this, even with creation itself. It's happened for me a few times. Uh, one is driving in Colorado. I had never seen, uh, been to the, uh, the Smoky Mountains, they're big hills. But then you see the Rockies, right? And you go there, and just on the horizon, just snow-capped mountains, for miles away, and they just get bigger as you get closer to them. It just impresses itself upon you. It's awesome in the like, real sense of the word, not like pizza's awesome. You know? It inspires awe, the magnitude of it, the beauty, the majesty. A couple other that just stick in my mind. Um, in northern Ontario, I uh, went fishing with the guys in my family, and just a perfectly clear night look up and see more stars than you could ever imagine just the beauty and grandeur of it or a couple years ago we were in Rhode Island and seeing the sunrise over the Rhode Island sound there just absolutely gorgeous it moves you it gives you this glimpse of God's glory of his handiwork in creation it's like good art cool just as an aside the last couple weeks um, just the artwork that's even been on our own worship guide is people in our church that make this beautiful artwork that touches you that moves you right but it doesn't have to be in these big things it's actually here in Wisconsin too but we often grow numb to it the beauty around us we grow so accustomed to it we grow cold to it we don't recognize it it's one of the things I love about Ruth bringing her flowers that it's every week the beauty of God's creation and what we're seeing here and then she shares it with us thankful for that it's there if we'll only look so it tells us of God's glory but how does it do it Look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Uh, translation's a little bit clunky here. So double negative in English uh, kind of sounds like it's saying all speech and all words are heard, right? Um, but that's not actually what it's saying. It's saying there is no speech. There are no words. Its voice is not heard. It's a wordless revelation. It's nonverbal. If you've ever played charades, that's kind of what creation's like. Um, if you haven't noticed yet, my voice is a little bit weaker than normal this morning, so I got a really good um, opportunity to experience what this is like this week. I completely lost my voice Monday afternoon through 
Tuesday, all of Wednesday, Thursday. It was barely coming back at all. And so I had this wonderful opportunity as I'm studying this passage to uh, try and communicate with, uh, she turned three today, it's Lucy's birthday, but with a three-year-old without using my voice. <laughs> if you know my three-year-old, uh, you might know that she doesn't stop talking and she asks a billion questions. Um, and I, most of you would probably be shocked to learn that she didn't understand anything I was trying to mime at her. Or she'd ask the same question like 15 times, but she'd never glance up to see what I was saying. She'd just keep repeating it over and over and over again. This happens with creation too. All right, since this is nonverbal communication, we easily misunderstand it. We don't know what it's saying. It's how we can end up worshiping the sun or nature instead of the one who made them the one whose glory they display. It's how we can end up saying things like, I don't need to go to church as God's word commands. I can meet with God in creation just the same. Fulfills that same role because we're misunderstanding what's being communicated. It can also be confusing. When we were in Rhode Island, I see that sunrise and then uh, that same week, Hurricane Henry, which downgraded to a tropical storm, uh, just before making landfall, like literally right where we were staying, that uh, was the first tropical cyclone to hit Rhode Island in 30 years. Great vacation. Um, but what are we to do with that, right? From astonishing beauty to just a big storm. Destructiveness. Just a couple of days later, we know creation's speaking, but it can be hard to tell what it's trying to say. Yet none of us can avoid it. Look at verses 4 to 6. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. It goes through all the earth. It goes to the ends of the world. The sun shows us this. That's the picture he uses. It rises. It runs its course. It sets. It gives light to all. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Think more Middle East where it's a little bit more intense than say in Wisconsin. It actually searches out the nooks and crannies. You can't get away from it. You can't escape it. You can't avoid it. So Paul tells us in Romans 1, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The stanza is what we talk about in theological terms as general revelation because it's available to all people generally. That through creation, God has shown everyone that he is God. That he is worthy of honor and thanks. That he exists and is powerful. Yet many don't seek to know him. They act as though he doesn't exist. And Paul tells us that they are without excuse. In the wordless revelation of God in creation, God has revealed his glory to us. But where does that leave us? We can't hide from it. It searches us out. 
But it doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us what he's like toward us. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's majestic. But it's not sufficient. We need something more if we're to know how to relate to this glorious God. And praise God that he has given it to us. As this song moves from singing about creation to the perfect revelation of God in Scripture. Where we hear him speak. So the psalmist goes from creation where nothing is hidden from his heat. You can imagine him feeling that. Then to moving to the scriptures that search even deeper. That search out and expose our very souls. And it gets more specific and intimate in other ways too. Where verses 1 to 6 use the general word God. The Hebrew word El um, in verse 1 there. Verses 7 to 9 use the personal name of Yahweh, that's the Lord, all caps, if you see that. It's his personal name. It's his covenant name to the people of Israel. It says this is his word. It's where he reveals himself and how we are to relate to him. This is what we call special revelation in contrast to general revelation. Where he gives us more specifics of who he is and how we are to seek him. And how we might be restored in relationship to him and how we're to live It doesn't do away with the value of general revelation, but it actually allows us to see it and understand it rightly. That we can look at creation now and worship God appropriately through it. And the stanza begins with um, six kind of sets. It goes noun, adjective, then a verb. Six sets of that. And this gives us this powerful view of the word of the Lord and its character, and its effect on those who place themselves under it as servants of Yahweh, as servants of the Lord. Then verses 7 and 9 there uses six different words to describe Scripture. Um, And as poetry, I think it's highlighting different facets of one thing rather than talking about six different, so we don't like set the word, the law up against the precepts and say that does that, that does that. I think it's cumulatively happening to talk about the whole of Scripture. That's how the poetry is functioning. It's putting it all together to just lambast us with the beauty of God's Word. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, which I think in this case is the revealed way in which the Lord is to be feared. And the rules of the Lord. All these are words that come from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they're all facets of God's covenant communication with his people. So it's all set up within the context of God's covenant with his people. That he's a God who enters into relationship with them. Tells them who he is. How they are to live. He stoops down to us that we might know him. Calvin says he lisps to us, um, which the picture there is like Kirby's three months old now, so it's like, oh, little buddy, you're so cute, you know, like that. That's God accommodating himself to us that we might understand like three months olds. It's kind of what we're like. What are these characteristics of the word of the Lord? Verse 7, it's perfect or blameless, um, same word, Translated blameless in verse 13. The testimony is sure that it can be trusted. Precepts are right, meaning they're 
think morally right, but the word also means straight, like they're a straight edge. They're actually the measuring rod, the things we compare other things up against to see if they're in line. The commandment is pure. There's no evil in it. The fear of the Lord is clean, which sounds a little weird, right? If you read it, all these things, and then it's clean. Um, but it's borrowing language, again, from Leviticus. It talks about things or people being unclean that can't go before the presence of God or they will provoke God's judgment or things that are clean that can go into the presence of God and be safe. That's what it's talking about. His rulings are true, perfect, trustworthy, right, pure, clean, true. If we're honest, all of those sound pretty good to us, sound like things that we need, especially with the distrust we have of any modern communication, if you're on Twitter or the internet or anything like that. But do we really believe God's word is all of these things? That's the question. Obviously, there are parts that we like, but what about the parts that we kind of react against? And we have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, the parts we want to explain away, the parts that are hard, that we don't like, that rub up against the things that we value. Parts that make us uncomfortable and make us want to say, like the serpent in the garden, did God really say... Allison and I are um, watching through the TV show West Wing again. I think it was like 99 is when it started. Um, But there's an episode about the death penalty and whether the president should stay this execution. And the communications director, Toby, he's Jewish, and he he goes to um, synagogue and rabbis trying to convince him to try and convince the president to stay this execution this guy who's guilty of triple murder and drug trafficking. And Toby tells him that the Torah, which is actually the same word for law here in verse 7, um, doesn't prohibit capital punishment. It says an eye for an eye. And then the rabbi responds, you know what it also says? And goes into the uh, greatest hits of modern complaints about the Bible. <laughs> Other sins that bring the death penalty. Um, polygamy, slavery, etc., And then he says, for all I know, that thinking reflected the best wisdom of its time, but it's just plain wrong by any modern standard. Now, obviously, he's not an orthodox rabbi because they would not say that, but um, I think that's how many of us often look at it. We look at God's word by the standards of our modern culture. So these things are wrong. The Bible isn't perfect. It has this stuff in it that we have to kind of hide away or explain away. It's got all sorts of things, especially in the Old Testament, which is the Psalms are most directly talking about. I mean, in our culture, the most obvious flashpoint on this is the biblical sexual ethic. In many different areas, sex, any sexual activities between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage. But that's not the only one. They're all over the place. Things that we bump into, things that we don't like, things that we want to explain away. But what if we're the ones who are wrong? We don't usually ask that question, right? What if I'm wrong? The Bible's always been offensive. 
It is to every culture. It is to every person because it corrects us. But the question is whether we will be humble enough to admit that maybe we're right, we're wrong, and it's right. I mean, when the Bible talks about the value of every human being, we say amen. And it says that we should love. We agree. That hasn't always been the case. Most of history wouldn't say that. It's a thoroughly Christian idea. I'm halfway through Tom Holland's dominion. It's like this thick. Um, Not a Christian. But says that without Christianity and its influence on society, we wouldn't think those things. Those things that are bedrock to what we believe and bedrock to even these movements that go against Scripture. Right? We look back on these things and rightfully say when they are that they're wrong. Right? It's good. Should, should correct things. And yet we're so confident today that we're right. That by any modern standard, it's clear that we're right and God's word is wrong. But what will they be saying about us in 50 years, in 100 years, in 200 years? Because for us to correct or neglect God's word instead of allowing it to correct us is just the epitome of arrogance. Right? It's saying that we are the high point in all of human history and none will surpass us. But if you've read any history, you know that that's just not true. <laughs> Every other generation, every other culture shows us that. We all have our own unique blind spots. Spots that disagree with God's word. But God's word is right. It is the standard by which we must judge these things, not the other way around. And it is a word that endures forever. What in God's word is hard for you? What, would you? what would it look like for you to actually go to God with that? Be honest. Don't just push it away, hide it. Actually deal with it. To take it to the Lord. That's what we're talking about in some of these psalms, right? Things that we don't expect, that people are honest about what they're going through and things that they're wrestling with. God can actually take it. I don't know if you know that. But then to say... God, I don't understand. I don't see how this is right, but I trust you. I will follow you. You are God, and I am not. Change me. And listen to the effects of delighting in and putting ourselves under God's word. It revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes. I think those are things that we all want, things that we all need. But it won't do that in our lives if we set ourselves as judge over it. And this stanza ends with the value of scriptures in verses 10 to 11. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. If we'll actually take God at his word on his terms, we'll see that it's actually what we need, that it actually gives us life, and that it's desirable. 
that it will actually change our desires. And just this picture is convicting for me. So for us as Christians like who believe God's word, who believe this is true, do we desire God's word like this? We don't collect gold, but what about the things? Things in our Amazon list, the things we're scrolling through. Do you think about these things that you want? That you desire while your Bible is sitting there collecting dust? I do sometimes. Or how many of you have a sweet tooth? I'll often grab a little chocolate or a scoop or three of ice cream once the kids are down. Am I more faithful in satisfying my physical sweet tooth than my spiritual one? Do I actually have this desire for God's word? If not, then I'm not seeing it or understanding it for what it is. I'm missing something. I'm not getting it. Because if we see God for who, is, who he is, we will love him. And we will love what he loves. And we will want to know him. We will want to see where he has revealed himself to us. We won't want to be as close to him as we can. We will delight in his word. We've seen the wordless revelation of God in creation and the perfect revelation of God in scripture. Now we see the right response to the revelation of God in this last stanza. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. It goes from a grand speech of God's revelation, praising Him for who He is and for His Word and what it does and its character turning in on himself, to considering himself. And he recognizes that nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, so also is nothing hidden in his own soul. That same word hidden is repeated again there. Not from God. His word will search it out. So what does he do? He calls out to God for mercy. He says, I don't even know my own heart. I can't discern my own errors. It's worse than I can imagine. There are things that I don't see. But you can. Have mercy on me. Don't hold it against me, but declare me innocent. You see the humility there? He doesn't look at God's word and allow it to puff him up because I did all these things. Because I obeyed it. Because I followed my Bible reading plan. I'm doing it. I love it. It makes me feel good about myself. It's the opposite of what we have. Psalmist is saying that if if that's what we're thinking, then we're not getting it. If we look into God's word, if we see his holiness... And what he calls us to, 
will actually say, oh man, I am so much worse off than I thought. My sin is so much deeper. I can't even see it. But God, you are gracious. You are merciful. It doesn't push him to despair. God's word shows his character. That he is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, from willful sins, from knowing what God calls me to and choosing to disobey for whatever reason, because I don't like what he's calling me to, because I love something else more, because it's too hard, because I'm afraid what others will say or think. God, keep me from doing these things. Keep me from choosing to disobey you. Don't let that take over my life. It happens quick. It's a snowball effect. I'm sure you've seen it in your own life, in the lives of friends. And notice too that even in this, in dealing with this sin, he's not even saying, I need to buck up and do better. Do better, be better, right? That's what we hear all the time. That is not what we see here. It's not what we see in Scripture. It's not the message of the gospel. Though we do have a responsibility. He's calling on God to work. He's imploring God to declare him righteous. To keep him from these sins. To let them not have dominion. He's asking God to work. He can't do it. He needs God. And if God is gracious to do these things, then what does he say? Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You will make me blameless. You will make me perfect and innocent though I am guilty. And he closes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He uses this sacrificial language again acceptable. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So how does he get here from knowing his sin is so deep that he can't even see it to the very thoughts of his heart possibly being acceptable to God? I think the answer is at the very end. Who is he calling on? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is a God who is a safe hiding place. He is a God who redeems. A God who saves. The Old Testament people knew of this primarily through the Exodus, that great story of redemption from slavery. And then the sacrificial system showed how to atone for their sins. Blood that was shed that they might be forgiven. But how much more do we? We know the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of the father. The only person never to sin. The only person who is truly innocent. Who is truly blameless. Yet who became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the one who takes our chewed up, marred, sinful Babe Ruth baseball and exchanges it with his perfect, blameless, innocent, acceptable murderer's row ball. You didn't think you were getting the gospel from the sandlot this morning when you came, did you? But that's what he does. This great exchange. He actually cleanses us. His blood washes us clean. And he fills us with his spirit that we might actually desire what he desires. That he enables us more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That the image of God is renewed in us after being marred in the fall. and Being degraded in our sin. He restores us. And it's a work he will continue until one day we are made perfect. That there is no more sin in us. Like we see with the psalmist, acknowledge your sin. Don't hide it. Don't explain it away. It's worse than you think. Own it. And trust in Him. Throw yourself on His mercy. Because it is more vast than you can imagine. If you trust in Him, He will redeem you. He will wash you and make you blameless. God has revealed Himself to us that we might know Him. And if we come to his word and primarily see it as what we're supposed to do, then we're missing it. It ultimately points us to Jesus. Our name's Emmaus Road Church, right? That comes from Luke 24, where Jesus walks with these guys on the road. And he explains to them from the whole Old Testament how it's all about him. It's all about him and what he has done. It's about how God enters in and reconciles sinners to himself. All by faith. Praise God that he has revealed this to us. That he has sent his son. That he has not been silent. He has shown us his power and glory in creation. He has shown us our need for him and his provision of a redeemer in his word. May we trust his son. May we submit to his word. And may he sanctify our thoughts in words.